This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast. Well, what a difference a week makes. Last week, there wasn't a lot to talk about. This week, I'm not sure we'll have enough time to talk about everything. Trades, Hall of Fame, we are joined by Jessica Berman, and could New York be making some announcements? All that more on OTCB. What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome back to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast here on SoundCloud, Spotify, and of course, home, sweet home, the Lacrosse Flash Podcast Network. I am your host, Teddy Jenner. You can find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar or email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com, or you can find the show on Instagram at OTCB Podcast. We are still in the COVID time frame, and we're not getting boxed across back anytime soon. We are getting field across, but not having box across stuff to talk about has made the summer, the start of summer, a little boring. Well, now that we are into July, And teams can start talking to players and teams can start talking to other teams. And we're getting close to free agency. We have some very, very juicy things to talk about. We'll talk a lot with Jessica Berman, the deputy. And also... EVP of Business Affairs for the National Lacrosse League. Her, her and I go over a smorgasbord of topics from draft, expansion, when the next season will start, the Hall of Fame. Yes, it is coming back. And we'll kind of break some of those things down a little bit later after we hear that interview. But there are more pressing issues at hand that we need to discuss. And it all started Monday after the long weekend when we really started to see some trades happen. And I don't think I've ever seen a day where four first-rounders, three first-rounders, three, no, yeah, four first-round picks all got flipped on one day. And almost every deal that was made had a first-round pick involved somehow. Minor moves. We'll get these out of the way. New England trades Mac Mitchell and a second-round pick to the New York Riptide in exchange for a second-round pick in the 2020 draft. Easy. Rich List going after one of his buddies from New England, Mac Mitchell. Uh, It'll give Mac Mitchell an excellent opportunity to play a lot of lacrosse. He's very due of that time, and I think he's going to be a big part of that defense in New York. Then we get into the Roughnecks trading Derek Downs to the Riptide in exchange for a third-round selection in 2020. Again, another New England guy that Rich List is very familiar with. I have a feeling this could be a theme for Rich Lisk. Going after guys that he is familiar with. 
Keep that thought in mind when we get towards free agency. Just dog-eared in your notebook. August 1st, when we get to free agency, just see what Rich Lisk and his soon-to-be-named general manager and head coach do and who they go after and the ties, the familiarity they will have with those players. Just keep that in mind. So he goes after Downs. He goes after Mac Mitchell. Now, the other big trades. Let's get this one out of the way because it has to deal with the Mammoth and them trading the way their captain, Dan Coates, and a first-round selection, which is the sixth overall pick to the Swarm for Zeddy Ballgame, Zed Williams, the 24th and 26th overall picks in the upcoming draft. I love Zed Williams. I think he's an absolutely fantastic player. I cannot wait to see him inside the Loud House. I think he's going to do great, great, great things for that offense. I know a lot of people are upset over the Dan Coates trade because Coatsy has been a mammoth regular ever since he was first drafted by the team by Steve Govett and Bob Hamley. He has become the heart and soul of that team, both on the floor, in the locker room, and off the floor. He is a fan favorite. He is the captain. But sometimes in a business world, you have to make tough decisions, and this was a very tough decision for Brad Self, Pat Coyle, and the Mammoth organization. As Coatsy said, there are a lot of mixed emotions with the deal. He is living back east now, but he's going to a new team, a new organization, and a group of guys that he may be a little bit unfamiliar with. One of the people he is familiar with is Ed Como, and they have a good working relationship. So I have a feeling that that was kind of a piece that Ed Como wanted because another trade Georgia did was flip Jason Noble to Toronto in exchange for a first-round pick in 2021 and a conditional first-round pick in 2020 or the 2022 entry draft. In my opinion, the Coates-Noble exchange is kind of an evener. They move Jason Noble, they bring in Dan Coates, it's a wash. Both are outstanding defenders. Noble won Defender of the Year 2017. Coates has often been considered one of the most consistent, reliable stay-at-home defenders in the game and can also run the floor. Plus, we all know what a great leader he is. So Noble for Coates, even though they weren't traded for each other, it's a bit of a swap. Georgia gets two first-rounders from Toronto and a first-rounder from Colorado. Toronto has now picked up Jason Noble, who many feel is is a great defender. I think he's a pretty good defender as well. He's going to help that Toronto defense. Toronto also then picks up Mitch DeSnew from Buffalo in exchange for Brock Sorensen, Alec Toulette, and a conditional first-rounder in either 2020 or 2022. My guess of that condition is if Brock Sorensen plays. It was brought up to my, by Jake Elliott when I was on his show this week that Brock Sorensen lives in L.A. out on the West Coast. 
Um, we all know that he's coming off that Achilles injury. He's had knee issues. Does he want to come back and play? Was Toronto just kind of moving him off their books because they know he's probably not going to play and they want to move forward with what they have now? So Toronto gets Mitch Desnew and Jason Noble. They lose a first-rounder in the 2021 or 2020 draft, plus two more first-rounders in 2020 and possible 2022. I don't think Jamie Dowick is allergic to first-round picks, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it kind of looks the optics that way and how he's building his club, but you have to take some other things in mind here. Because we know how this draft is going to play out and the fact that if you draft guys in the first round, you may be drafting a guy you don't get for two years. Jamie Dowick is in win-now mode. And I think he sees a window of opportunity for his club based on how they were playing last year. The fact that this could be a very interesting rookie class. You may not get the top-end players right away. And you're going to get Tom Schreiber back. A healthy Tom Schreiber back, hopefully, for the season. So you're boosting your offense in getting Schreiber back. You've just shored up your defense with two outstanding defenders. I think Mitch Disnew is quite underrated, and I think he is a very talented defender. I watched him in the Man Cup, and he's big, he's mobile, he's fast. He can do a lot of things in that rock back end. But as a lot of people have kind of talked about, uh, Pat Gregoire said it, I think Jake said it, um, the addition of Disnew and Noble as more stay-at-home guys will allow players like Challen and Latrell and Hostrauser for a, a little bit of it, um, some of their detransition type guys to be more versatile and physical and, and fast-paced. Let them run the floor. Let them do a lot more. If you can have a decor group with like four stay-at-home guys and you got five or six transition two-way guys, you're allowing yourself to have more success in running the ball. So while on the surface it may look like Jamie is selling the farm for the selling the future for winning now, yes. But there's one other caveat you always have to take into account with Toronto. And one day I imagine Vancouver is going to get in this scenario again. Is that Toronto will always have the luxury of being able to lure free agents home. So sure, they may not be able to draft a guy and get a guy when he's 21, 22 years old out of college. But when they become uh, an RFA or when they become UFAs, Toronto will always be a destination for guys from the GTA. Because they'll always want that opportunity to come back and play at home. So if he has to sell the future right now to shore up his defense and he thinks that maybe in free agency he can go out and get a couple guys, then I'm okay with the moves that he made. Because if he's going to go and get guys, he can probably go get guys that he can keep for two, three years and not have to worry about this year's draft class. So a very interesting you know, start to trade season, if you will. 
I don't know what other trades are out there, but again, I didn't see a lot of these trades happening. And this is the kind of this is the time of year where this crazy stuff can happen. Because I really believe, and I've said this many times, GMs have to plan for this draft now. They have to really look into who they are going to take. Do they need guys now, or can they be patient? And let those guys finish their schooling and get a double draft class next year. I said it on All Talk No Action this week. There are teams in the NLL right now, and Toronto may be one of them, Halifax is another, that may really like where they're at currently. And so they may not be as concerned with who is in this draft, or that they may not be as concerned with not getting their first round draft picks this year. They may want to see what this team can do with another year, a full year together. Then in two years, get a double draft class and you can kind of rebuild what wasn't working. So uh, this, it, this COVID thing has really thrown a wrench into a lot of inner workings and not just the fact that we're not playing right now. It's going to be interesting how general managers maneuver around this year's draft. And the fact that we've already seen a handful of draft picks in the next couple of drafts moved, it shows that some GMs are indeed in that either win-now mode or holding pattern mode. And I think it's going to make for a very, very interesting next season. There were some other minor moves. Uh, Sean Evans signed a one-year deal in Rochester. Uh, Halifax re-signed Brandon Robinson and Pete Dubinsky. Uh, Cam Dunkerley to the practice player, uh, protected practice player agreement uh, by the rush. Drew Belgrave gets a two-year deal. I think Drew Belgrave is only going to get better. I've really enjoyed watching him mature in the National Lacrosse. He, he, he was pretty green coming out of junior, but he's really molded himself into a fantastic transition player under Pat Merrow in San Diego there. So congratulations to him on a two-year deal. Angus Goodleaf being released from the inactive roster by the New York Riptide is a bit of a, a bit of a head scratch. I haven't talked to Rich Lisk about this one quite yet, but parts of me think that this is maybe a health issue release. Y'all remember uh, Ang Bang uh, had a very scary incident in a senior B game last summer, I, th- I believe it was, and hasn't played since. So maybe that is the reason, but I didn't think that they would release him outright like that if it's not for just other reasons. So that was a bit of a head-scratcher, but it'll be interesting to see what they do now in goal in New York because that is still their one biggest weak spot. Uh, The Thunderbirds signed Chet Knezny to a one-year deal, Corey Becker to a two-year deal, and Trevor Smith to a three-year deal. Uh, A lot of people out east are high on Trevor Smith. They think he's going to be a really, really good defender down the way. Uh, The Warriors provide Logan Schuss with a qualifying offer. He's an RFA, so that's uh, big news to get Logan Schuss offered up. The Rock signed Hellier to a three-year deal. They got him long-term, and that's massive because he's a massive part of their offense. Uh, the Sheriff, Scott Johnson, to a one-year deal with the Riptide. Uh, what else? The Thunderbirds signed Clay Scanlon to a two, two-year deal, sent qualifying offers to Shanks and Withers. Uh, just today, the Riptide signed Dan Lomas to a one-year deal. 
Nonkin Thompson, the outstanding rookie for the T-Birds, got a three-year deal and qualifying offers sent to Chase Fraser, Josh Byrne, and Nick Weiss of the Bandits. So teams are starting to prepare for free agency. And once I get my fingers on a list and I get the okay to do so, um, we will be putting out a list of free agents, RFAs, UFAs, um, that could be on the move once August 1st hits. Before we get to Jessica Berman, let's give you the way that the first round looks right now. So the New York Riptides still have that number one overall pick followed by Rochester, Vancouver, San Diego, Calgary. Now Georgia comes in at number six, with their first pick of the first round, followed by Philadelphia, Georgia again, Buffalo, Georgia again, that's the Toronto pick, Halifax, Saskatchewan, Georgia again, that's the New England pick, followed by Halifax, San Diego, and Philadelphia. So lo and behold, John Arlotta has found himself four more first round picks in a draft that, as said, could hold a lot of players that don't play this year. Very, very interesting to see how it all is going to play out and what John Arlotta does with those picks. And if we see any more major trades or shocking trades like we saw on Monday. So, like I said, August 1st is free agency. July 30th or 31st, one of those two days when teams have to franchise uh, an unrestricted free agent. And again, we're working on getting those lists for you. So hopefully maybe this time next week, we can break down free agency and who's in and who's out. Our guest this week is Jessica Berman, the deputy, the EVP of business affairs and the highest ranking female in professional sports. When her and I talk, it's always a very friendly fun, engaging conversation. And I think this one is going to be even better because we did sort of an ask me anything kind of interview. And this was her idea because she wanted to give some information, but she also wanted to be open and transparent to fans and stuff like that. And we got a lot of different questions from fans, um, some from players, other media, my niece even threw a question in there. So there's a lot of good stuff. Obviously there's some things she couldn't elaborate on, but let's just call those teasers. And there are some good teasers in here. There are some really awesome things to look forward to in the coming months. Do we know when the season is going to start? Is the Hall of Fame coming back? Yes, the Hall of Fame is coming back. And after this interview, we're going to go in a little bit of depth of who should be in this next class. But please, enjoy a one-on-one Ask Me Anything style interview with the Deputy Commissioner... Jessica Berman. Joined now by Jessica Berman, the deputy, deputy commissioner, that is, of the National Lacrosse League and executive vice president of business affairs. Jessica, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm dreaming of our time together in Vegas in person. Ah, those were the days, weren't they? Yeah, I, I'd like to find a reason to leave my house. So yeah. my uh, balls are not as lofty as Vegas these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, how have you been? Obviously, uh, everything that's going on the last three months, we're all isolated in our own little corners of the world. 
As a mother and a, as a head of a household, how are you and the family dealing with COVID? We're surviving, trying to make the best of it. Um, say the biggest challenge is uh, trying to give my kids stimulation while balancing my commitments at work. Uh, my skin crawls when my kids are on screen for more than 90 minutes. So um, I have to temper my reaction in those moments and just try to keep them stimulated. They often probably see you on Skype calls and Zoom meetings. So are they getting frustrated with you being on the screen for that long at a time as well? They know more about the sports business than <laughs> probably a lot of people who actually work in the sports business. They know way more than I think they ever wanted to or imagined they would. But we've had some pretty interesting conversations over dinner after a long day of conversations both within the NLL ecosystem or with other sports leagues where they ask some really interesting questions. So they're definitely listening and learning. Definitely not your traditional uh, school experience for a nine and a 12 year old, but I, I think there'll be some silver linings coming out of it in terms of what they learn and understand about how the world works. Absolutely. We're, we're all learning about how we can develop ourselves and other resources that we can use. Um, we are doing a bit of an ask me anything sort of uh, interview. This was kind of your idea. So one of the questions uh, that I got from fans actually pertains to your family. And the question is, how is your son's mullet doing? Wow, <laughs> I love it. Um, and he will love it too. So both of my boys had mullets until oh, no. somewhat recently. My younger son, Andrew, who's nine, decided to cut his mullet. I think it was like his breakout individualized moment where he's not in his brother's shadow. But Noah, who's 12 and is a goalie, I think he'll have a mullet for the rest of his life. So it is, um, it is definitely rocking, and he is living his 80s self. I've seen some pictures, and that has volume it has density it has feathers it's got a little bit of everything going on and he absolutely rocks it with pride he does and my favorite comment that i've gotten from people along the way is how did you convince him to grow a mullet i think that's just the funniest comment or question i've ever heard because no mother on earth would ever try to get their kid to grow a mullet i don't think so it was totally his idea inspired by reading books like the best hockey players of all time and uh, seeing pictures of people like Yarmir Yager and Wayne Gretzky from the seventies and eighties. And he was just inspired. A lot of the players in today's generation of the national lacrosse league were inspired by the greats of our game. And many of those are enshrined in the national lacrosse league hall of fame. Unfortunately, over the last few years, we haven't had classes and I'm not saying it's been put on the back burner, but, the Hall of Fame hasn't been something that we have recognized in the last few seasons. Where are we on that? Are we going to see uh, a revised Hall of Fame, and are we going to start to be able to enshrine some of the greats that are yet to be in there? We are, and I'm not sure that it's been officially announced, but maybe this is breaking news. Uh, it is being relaunched for this year in 2020, and so – we are excited to celebrate the history of our game, and we see it as a necessary bridge to our alumni and the players of the future in the NLL. And, of course, history can teach us so much about our game and the future. 
And so we're excited to have that come back in action. And so more to come on that, but it is back and it will be here in 2020. That is great news. Maybe this will be more news coming, but one of the issues that people often had was the voting process and how people had to have 75% of the votes and some of the voters, you know, kind of skewed their votes different ways. Is, is that process changing or will we learn that as we get there? We will learn that as it comes. Um, we have a committee of people who are working tirelessly to ensure that we get a lot of different perspectives and maintain and balance uh, the different points of view along the way so that we hopefully end up with the best possible outcome. So uh, more to come on that for sure. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, before we got into the COVID thing, we were all kind of expecting the 14th team to be announced. And there was allusion to that. And people sleuthed the internet and found out that Fort Worth and the Fort Worth Panthers and Panthers Lacrosse Club were all kind of floating around out there in the ethos of something that might be coming down the pipeline. Where are we on expansion and can we expect anything soon? So uh, excited that people are excited and yeah. uh, there will be, uh, we hope, uh, fingers crossed on this. Nothing is done until it's done. Um, perhaps that's the lawyer and me talking, <laughs> but uh, we will have uh, hopefully good news to share on that front, uh, hopefully in the not too distant future. I can't confirm or deny the specifics, right. yeah. but uh, I, if I was a, a betting woman, I would say our 14 team is coming soon. Did, did the COVID scenario slow that process down? Like if we were just wrapping up our season, crowning a champion uh, and looking forward to the awards and all that, would we have already had the 14 team, do you think? It's hard to say what would have happened if we removed different conditions or factors, mm -hmm. but I would say that uh, COVID changed a lot of things, not the least of which is uh, sort of what we were forced to focus on in the short term at the league office and all of the different decisions that had to be made in those days, weeks, and months following the day the world changed on I believe it was March 13th. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I suspect a lot of things would be different. That may be one of them, but uh, I'm, I'm also happy to say that we have continued despite COVID-19 and the uncertainty that it's brought to the global economy and the sports industry specifically, that we have continued to have significant interest in several markets. And mm -hmm. those conversations have evolved, not just for Team 14, but beyond. So uh, we're really happy with where we're at and tracking towards what I know you've heard about and we've talked about, I think, the last time we spoke, which is our goal to be at 16 teams by 2023. Mm -hmm. Vegas still on the radar because that seemed like a pretty successful whirlwind weekend. Vegas is absolutely on the radar uh, it was a hugely successful weekend. We think Vegas is a great market for a host of reasons, and um, it is definitely on the short list of where we'd like to see ourselves as a expansion market. What, what's so alluring about the Vegas market to sport teams? Is it because it's still kind of untapped? I think it's in part defined by some of the success of the Golden Knights, uh, mm -hmm. which obviously 
I was part of the NHL when that team launched. And I think um, the way that they launched the team through the local community really focused on redefining what Vegas means. I think most of us think about Vegas as a tourist destination city, Mm -hmm. but there are lots of people who live in Clark County who have an identity that's based in living in Las Vegas. And I think the Golden Knights really did a masterful job of tapping into that community and giving them something to cheer for and something to identify with and creating a community asset. And I think when people saw that, it really reframed how they think about Vegas. And I'm sure you know the demographics of how Vegas has become a place where people are moving to. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of really young people who are living in Vegas who call Vegas home and are yearning for the community asset that a professional sports franchise provides. One of the great things about Vegas is obviously the little sports gambling as well. And and the National Cross League is trying to venture in that way with obviously MGM being a, a big sponsor of the National Cross League. And I know Rob Benson does a lot of work with the stats. How are we working with the sports gambling outlets to take lacrosse into that realm, but also make sure our stats and our information, all that stuff is current and up to date. Yeah. Launching a sports betting platform in a professional sports league is not an easy task. It it touches virtually every area of the business. And uh, had we not had to put the pause on this past season, on the 1920 season, it would have launched with the 2020 playoffs in uh, an initial stage of sports betting. So unfortunately we had to push that into next season, but it is going to be implemented for next year. And we really use this opportunity, this pause to relook at our strategy and ensure that we're going to market with a comprehensive marketing and fan engagement strategy that really teaches not just, the sports betting world, but also the lacrosse world about betting on lacrosse. You can imagine, probably no surprise to your listeners, that there isn't a huge market currently today Mm -hmm. for betting on lacrosse, and it is our commitment and intention to build that. As the saying goes, if you give betters something to bet on, they'll bet on it. Yeah, well, we saw (laughs) you see that even in the Oscars. I remember it when I was watching the Oscars. People were betting on whether someone was wearing a long dress or a short dress or they came with a date or with their parents. Like people will bet on virtually anything. But I think what that really, the key takeaway for that, from my perspective, when I think about growing the NLL more broadly is that people are yearning for ways to interact with and have a role and be an active fan. And so I think what sports betting provides is that opportunity to feel like you're in the driver's seat, even if it's in a sort of uh, fantasy type way. And so uh, betting is obviously one way to tap into that, but I think there are a lot of other ways that we're excited to explore. And we have been exploring, I think COVID-19 has really expedited the innovation around those conversations because we're all being forced to think more creatively about how we increase revenue and relevance considering the climate that we're in. The other half of the climate they're in right now is racial inequality and and the systemic racism that goes throughout the world. And, and through our sport, we all know it is a very predominant white sport. However, we are enthralled in native roots. 
how are we working with our indigenous players and everybody in our league to, as you have often said, make lacrosse for everyone? We are doing that through uh, really a three-pronged process, and we actually sent out a communication to the entire NLL ecosystem. So that's on the front office management side, players, referees, pretty much everyone who touches the NLL directly to outline a strategy for how we were going to bring action to our words. I'm sure uh, you saw the words we released for blackout uh, mm-hmm. Tuesday, as well as uh, following George Floyd's unfortunate death and all of the reactions from all the sports leagues. And I, I'm someone who has worked in this space really my whole life, having grown up in Brooklyn in a very diverse community. And I believe words matter, but I also believe actions matter. And so the memo that we send to the NLL ecosystem really outlines a three-part strategy. One is based in education. Second is for us to collectively listen and really reach out to and hear from those who have the experience of an underrepresented group within our ecosystem. And then the third is community programming and how are we reaching out from a fan perspective to ensure that lacrosse is for everyone. So in all three of those prongs, you will see meaningful impact and substantive change and efforts that the league and the teams and our players will be doing together as we embark on what I think is the next phase of this cultural revolution that's happening around us. And I'm thankful to work for a sport that has a history of having prioritized this and Nick's uh, decision to rebrand the logo of the NLL and the inclusion of the Morning Star and the importance of the narrative around the history of our game. It's actually the thing that inspired me most my first week with the NLL when we hosted our player business summit and I talked to 15 NLL players who convened to talk about the future of the NLL, and every single player said the same exact thing, whether they were white or not, which is you can't talk about the culture of our game without honoring the history of our game with the indigenous community. And so that authenticity will shine through in anything we do, and so I'm really thankful to work for a sport that understands that. Brad Chowner brought up the point in one of the all talk, no action segments that the NL has been producing with Devin Caney and the crew, um, where he said that he would like to see the National Lacrosse create an indigenous player award to recognize some of the efforts that all these guys are doing for our sport. Is there a plan for the National Lacrosse to either create something like that or do some renaming of some awards to honor past players, much like the NHL does? Well, it is definitely um, part of what we are looking at. And we always appreciate suggestions from those who are passionate about and care about our sport. Um, And so we saw that and it's certainly on the list of things that we are considering for, for the future. Um, Certainly I think identifying and linking awards to iconic individuals in our history that sort of embody the character and the attributes of the award is something that adds meaning to the award, particularly for the player who's receiving it. And so that is certainly something we'll look at. That's, that's awesome. I think that's something that, that's been needed to be done for our sport. You know, we have uh, the Tom Brelli Award and we have the Les Bartley Award, but everything else is just sort of a generic name. So I think that is definitely something um, that we could look forward to the 35th season of the National Lacrosse League, which is wild to think that we are 35 years in and you're just 
kind of a rookie still in all of this. What's the biggest thing you've learned in your first year with the National Cross League? Biggest thing I've learned, um, I think uh, from a professional and, and personal perspective that uh, when you work in an environment where the people around you are inspired to innovate and be nimble and grow, that the sky's the limit on what you can achieve. And uh, I really, really enjoyed and thrived in being in a very risk-tolerant environment where the desire is for growth, and it's a growth mindset, and any and all opportunities for us to innovate in terms of technology, in terms of fan engagement, are on the table and considered. And uh, I would say the second piece is being part of a leadership team that truly communicates, collaborates, and debate and discussion is welcome is really fun for me. And mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed being part of an organization that facilitates that and values that. When you're in those Board of Governor meetings, take us inside the room. Do they ever get heated or is it pretty much just a, a business meeting in and out, let's get out of here? Or does, are there a lot of back and forth discussions of people trying to better our game? Wow. Um, they, they absolutely do uh, get heated and people are extremely passionate about mm -hmm. this sport, about our league, about our future, about balancing the need to grow with the history of our game, about balancing business with the competition. Um, and I think, you know, what I've always valued in all of my life is opportunities to facilitate diverse perspectives. And so diversity isn't only with respect to gender or race, it's with respect to perspectives and your experience. And so hearing from people who maybe played in the game or in the league, um, people who uh, really understand and value and appreciate the competition, and then hearing from people who maybe have an outsider's perspective but come to it from a business standpoint, all of those perspectives are important to hear out and discuss. And hopefully, if people are open-minded, you all are able to sort of come together in a place that ends up in the best possible decision and outcome for the growth of the league. As we grow, we obviously have to take into account everything that's going on with the COVID-19 scenario. How, as a league, are we operating through this to make sure that when we start up, uh, we are ready for whatever precautions are necessary? We have been, uh, really since the beginning of April, uh, facilitating a formal committee focused on the impact of COVID-19 that is uh, made up of executives from seven different teams who hold varying different positions at those teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, those teams are, uh, we are collectively with those teams input working on a set of recommendations uh, really based around three verticals. Uh, the first is the at-home viewer experience. The second is the in-arena experience. And the third is the commercial space. And so uh, those commit, that committee is charged with really thinking about it creatively, but also reviewing industry best practices and what's coming down the pike 
across the industry and, and also looking outside of our industry. Some of our key learnings, early learnings and insight was looking at what the airline industry is doing or what the restaurant industry is doing. And so um, it's really just uh, the purpose of the group is really um, assigning responsibility to people to help shepherd new ideas to bring them to the table and ultimately make recommendations out to the rest of the team. We are also, uh, through my board with the University of Michigan Sports Management alumni, um, are partnering with them to curate a white paper that is almost completed where they um, sought out feedback from virtually all aspects of the sports industry, from media to brands to agencies to even players common thread for all of them is that they're Michigan alums. So perhaps that's a little bit of a bias, but <laughs> um, it, we even, they even reached out to NLL players who played at Michigan uh, mm-hmm. when they were in college. So um, from that perspective, uh, the goal there is to really get an academic lens that filters in some of the historical experiences that the, the world has pivoted from, whether it's 9-11 or other historical global pandemics, and really use that history to uh, interpret and apply some of how people are viewing the future beyond COVID-19. And how are we communicating as a league with the players and coaches to to make sure that they're staying healthy and up to date on everything as as we move forward? Well, um, I think we've had more communication with the player association than we ever have in the history of the league. Uh, I speak with the folks from the PLPA, Peter Schmidt, Dave Suckamore, and Jason Jarrows every single Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. And that has gone on since the beginning of COVID-19. And um, so anything that's sort of news or um, issues we need feedback on, whether it's from the union or directly from the players, sort of filters through that process. Uh, a couple of times we've sent communications directly to players um, in partnership with the union where we have a sort of really important message that we want to directly communicate. Um, but of course our teams are still in touch with the players and many of our teams hold regular conference calls for the players to make sure their questions are being answered. Um, and of course we know that a significant percentage, I think is 30% of the players who play in the outdoor league of this summer are from the NLL. And so um, those players are obviously being monitored more closely mm-hmm. through those leagues operations. Speaking of the, the outdoor league, we are seeing more and more field across players making the jump to the indoor game and playing in the national cross league. How are we continuing to open the door for those players and show them that, show them that box across is a way to go? Well, that's a perfect tee up for the campaign we launched on Sunday, <laughs> which uh, hopefully you've had a chance to see called Inside I have? the Box. Yeah. Where um, the goal there was really to specifically target the field lacrosse community, the grassroots community. And it's a campaign where we partnered with U.S. Lacrosse and U.S. Boxla to interview and get the perspective of individuals who have a significant role to play in the field game who respect and play or participate in the box game and really to kind of champion the message that number one, we're all one big sport and that um, playing the box game can actually help you with your field game. 
And our hope is that that translates to more families and parents being curious about the box game and being able to facilitate playing. I'm, I know you know that in Canada, it's the reverse. And yes. kids play box and aren't really as familiar with the field game. And so we're just really trying to bring that education across the border into the U.S. And having people like Bill Tierney champion that message is um, going to accomplish way more than if we said it ourselves. And mm-hmm. so um, we had the idea, actually, because back in September, my first month of the league, we were out in Denver and we had dinner with Coach Tierney. And he was talking about how um, he thinks the box game is exciting and great for learning and that he's recruiting kids who play box. And we were like, we need to capture this. This is amazing. <laughs> we need the field community in the United States to really embrace this because if they knew that Coach Tierney is looking for players who play box, then mm-hmm. maybe some of those parents will start to use the box games for training. And it's also really fun for kids, as you know. So yes. um, that's, that's really a, a new effort, a new focus effort from a marketing perspective to really focus on the crossover between the field game and the box game. Coach Tierney is a, like you said, is a huge champion for our sport. He played in, in the NLL back in the day. Like he understands what it takes, and he knows um, that if you play the box team, it's going to help your field game, and a lot of those field guys are starting to come over. And we were hopefully going to see a lot of those field guys have their names drafted alongside many Canadians and American players elsewhere in the draft. Uh, we don't know an official date yet, but what we do know is that teams are going to be able to draft kids and hold on to their rights for another year if those kids want to go back for that fifth year of eligibility. How did we come to that decision? And was that an easy decision to make? Definitely not an easy decision to make. Anything that affects competition is never going to be an easy decision, um, particularly where there's kind of acute implications for teams' uh, competitive balance and draft rights going into this year's draft. But um, it, the way we came to that decision was through a variety of discussions through our competition committee and getting the perspectives of a lot of different people who have a lot of experience and really care about the game and competitive balance. Uh, I think for, for the NLL, this change will facilitate uh, additional crossover between our game and the field game from a viewership standpoint because players who – are drafted in this year's draft can actually play this year in college. Mm-hmm. And so um, sort of the way, you know, other leagues like baseball or hockey have some crossover where a player is in the reserve system and is playing in college will at the league at the NLL be able to sort of champion the fact that an NLL team has the rights of a college player who's currently playing. It'll give us a reason to promote and focus on, the college game, which we know here in the U.S. has a huge following. And so with the idea that that player could ultimately join his NLL team this year, I think mm-hmm. that'll be great opportunity for the NLL to build its relevance here in the U.S. Absolutely. I, I think it just adds a, a mystique to the draft because we really don't know what GMs are going to do. Do they want to build now or do they want to wait for a guy that's going to be two years out? Exactly. Yeah, no, it, it'll definitely add some intrigue to the draft. Um, after the draft, usually comes training camp and the start of the regular season. Obviously, we we don't know when that's going to be just because of what's going on. But 
has the league talked in some of their heated board of governor meetings of when uh, the start date for the 35th season is tentatively supposed to be? Yeah, well, I I think what's been interesting to me in this uh, sort of onboarding year is that it's um, the start date of the NLS season hasn't always been the same week. So uh, in that way, I think it gives us a little bit more flexibility because there's not an expectation that we have to start by X date or there's some sort of like deviation or explanation required. So with that being said, I think that provides us with the opportunity to make a smart business decision. Um, And I think uh, all signs point to the later we can start, the better from a business standpoint. It's our hope and based on what we're reading and hearing and following that um, hopefully by the end of 2020, we'll be in a better place as a country as it relates to how we're handling this pandemic. And uh, in any event, uh, we'll know more then than we know today. And that can only serve us well. So I suspect, although there haven't been any firm decisions made as to a particular date, that it will be later rather than earlier. When you say later rather than earlier, do you mean later in 2021 or do you just mean like this year we started in November, next year it might start like end of December, early January? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, you're talking about like, a, you know. Like are you um, thinking about shifting the whole season or are we just saying like, you know, we usually start maybe December, so we're going to start January. Yeah, I, I, I'm hesitant to commit to a particular time <sighs> yeah. or date because we're still working through it. But um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was, you know, super late in 2020 or early in 2021. Right, right. Okay, gotcha. Um, how do we come out on the other side better than this, than, than when we came in? You know, we were we were really striving as a league. and. And, and Nick and yourself and, and everybody within the, within the office has said, this is just a pause button. When we hit pause again, how do we make sure that we're better on the other side? Well, I think we've learned so much in the last several months. Number one, and, and most importantly, from a marketing perspective, I think our creative team has demonstrated that, although, of course, we love game action and that's content that our fans love and we can't wait to be back on the floor, the truth of the matter is, I think we surprised ourselves with the type of content that we were able to produce since the middle of March and our team pivoted almost immediately. Uh, I know you've participated in the all talk, no action. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously we've had a whole bunch of other series, the house parties um, and the idea that we could continue to grow relevance and social following without live or new game action has been a really key learning for us. And, it sort of reminds me of uh, something that I learned from the CMO at the NHL, Heidi Browning, who came from Pandora. She used to say in meetings that we have to focus on humans over highlights. And um, it's not to say that highlights aren't important, but people care about people and stories. And because of that, I think uh, we'll take some of these key learnings and bring them to next season and integrate it to have a more balanced approach to the type of content we're producing. I also think that um, coming out of this, um, you know, we've all learned that uh, we can get a lot more done in a day than we ever imagined. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not sure if how sustainable it is 
for us to be getting as much done as we have been and working as many hours as we have been every single day. But we've, we've sort of lost the separation, or I, I should say personally, I've lost the separation between my personal and my professional life and um, only know that today is the day before tomorrow and the day after yesterday. So, um, you know, we can get a lot done with time. And uh, I think we'll be able to see a lot of benefits from our productivity and all of the ideas that we're working towards bringing to action. You quoted the Hamilton um, movie the other day on your Twitter account, and you said winning, they said winning is easy, but governing is harder. How are you finding governing in the National Lacrosse League? Yeah, I, it's nuanced, right? Um, yeah. I, I think the reason that quote in Hamilton that I was watching with my kids really resonated with me is because um, it's, it's sort of, uh, there's an end date. Uh, you know what you're working towards. It's clear. You can put your blinders on and just like run towards that finish line. And then it feels like you're done, but really it's the beginning mm. and uh, governing is just so nuanced and it requires so much input and socialization uh, of concepts and uh, getting different perspectives and balancing when is the right time to bring forward a change. When do you, push when do you pull um and so i think those nuances are really the thing that make or break leaders because you can have all the great ideas in the world but if you have a plan for how to bring them to action then it doesn't really much matter so um that that was really what was in my mind when i when i tweeted that quote Mm -hmm. I'm going to end with one last question. This is uh, the one of the questions uh, from my niece, Mackenzie. I know you and her are going to have a little sit-down interview in the coming weeks. I'm so much so thrilled about that because that is uh, so awesome for her, and she's super excited. But one of the questions that she sent me was, um, as a high-ranking female in the sports world and where you are, um, what's that like for you? And what is it like to be in, in such a position where not many people have been? You know, I think, um, well, first of all, I'm thankful for the opportunity every day, uh, not just being a woman, but just to have the opportunity to work in sports, which has been my dream since I was 16, is humbling, and I'm thankful for it. I recognize how many people want my job and can probably do my job, and so I covet it and and put my all in every minute of every day, knowing that it's a privilege. There's just so few things in this world that have the opportunity to influence culture the way sports does. And so I, I'm just so thankful that I have the opportunity. But I would say, you know, being a woman in what tends to be more of a male-dominated world um, just gives me empathy and compassion for underrepresented groups. Like, I'm super aware of situations where someone is under-indexed or underrepresented in a particular room. By the way, sometimes that's a man in a group of women. Um, I'm just very sensitive to how it feels to be the only. And I think that's really helped me to just be more self-aware and acutely aware of my surroundings and, and created a responsibility that I've put upon myself to try to facilitate making sure that those people who are underrepresented have an opportunity to have their voice be heard because I know that sometimes that's hard and takes a lot of confidence to make sure that your voice is heard. 
And um, I think it's incumbent on people who are in those positions of power or influence to facilitate that. Such incredible words of advice for anybody who is trying to make the next step. Jessica, I appreciate everything that you've done for our sport. I appreciate everything you've done for our listeners today and just giving us some of your time. I know it's getting dinner time. you got to take care of those hungry, growing boys. Uh, stay safe. Hopefully, uh, the next time we speak, we'll be in person, maybe in Vegas. Uh, I hope you're well. Mm-hmm. Thanks again so much for your time. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. That's the Deputy Commissioner and EVP of the National Lacrosse League Business Affairs, Jessica Berman. A lot to dissect. Uh, Sounds like the next season will probably start near the end of 2020 at the beginning of 2021. Um, I think that's good. I just don't see us coming back any sooner than the new year, as tough as it seems our borders still aren't open. Like it's not going to be easy to, to fly around North America to games. I I just, I don't see that happening for a while. Um, giving kids that extra fifth year was an important asset to them. Uh, they really felt like they needed to do that. I think communicating with players, fans, fan engagement has been something that the national crossing has really, thrived on during this, uh, whether it be the all talk, no action segments, the 22 questions, uh, or even the think inside the box segment they're doing in cooperation with us lacrosse and us box. I think all of those endeavors are really good. They need to keep it up and they need to keep those lines of communications open because that is important during these times of the unknown. And keeping everybody as up-to-date and transparent on things as possible is key. And I really appreciate her letting us know that we will be seeing the 14th team in the National Lacrosse League coming sometime soon. Uh, Soon being the operative word. And while she didn't say it wasn't going to be Fort Worth and she didn't say it was going to be Fort Worth, kind of think it's going to be the Fort Worth Panthers. Um, So that'll be cool. One quick moment of Fort Worth. It will be really the deepest, one of the most southern teams in NLL history, along with Anaheim, Arizona, and Orlando. But it's also kind of in the middle of nowhere in terms of where all the other NLL teams are. So I th- that might be a tough travel or destination for players. If that indeed is where the NLL goes to next... It's like an hour west of Dallas. And the next closest team would probably be either Georgia or Colorado. So there's geographical struggles or or difficulties, maybe. But if that's where they go, I'm excited for it to happen. If it's any other cities that might be mentioned, obviously Vegas is high on a lot of people's lists. I think that's huge. Um, I can't wait for the next round of expansion where we go and to see what Nick, Jessica, Joel Feld, Kevin Morgan, and everybody involved see where they take us because this is a huge tipping point for the National Cross League in sports is how do we respond when we get back to normalcy? Will lacrosse ever look the same? Guess we got to wait and see. But the big ticket item in all of that 
is that the Hall of Fame is coming back and there will be a class of 2022. No, a class of 2020. There will be a class of 2022. But first, we got to get the class of 2020 done. While she didn't go into when, stipulations, maybe a tease on who, I think we have to really look at how we do the Hall of Fame process. And again, this is something I've talked about for many the last few years because I have been very adamant in trying to figure out why it went away. I've been very adamant in trying to get it back. And under previous regimes and direction, I was often told that the National Crossing was reworking the voting process. They were reworking the eligibility process. And we haven't had a class inducted in the Hall of Fame since 2017. And we are long overdue to induct many of our greats because we have now had two and a half, almost three years without an induction. And there have been some names that have stepped away from the game that need induction. John Grant Jr., Sean Williams, Billy D. Smith, Colin Doyle, Anthony Cosmo, just to name a few. And those are most recent guys that have stepped away from the game that need to be inducted. But then you got guys like Jake Berge, Tom Carmian, Chris Gill, Kevin Finneran, Jay Jalbert, Reggie Thorpe, Pat McCready, Gavin Prout, Lewis Ratcliffe, Jeff Snyder, and one of the biggest snubs, Casey Powell. Those are guys... Maybe except for like Carmian and Berge, a lot of these guys have still only retired within the last decade. Heck, a lot of those guys are maybe even the last five years. So we need to get those guys in. However, much like the NHL, NBA, NFL, they have a waiting period before a player can be eligible for the Hall of Fame so that it gives a chance for others an opportunity to get in. And if you go back and look at some of the past inductions into the NLL Hall of Fame, and everybody that has been inducted into the NLL Hall of Fame is 1,000% do their just bust, as it were. However, we have had... Five years, sorry, three years where only, no, four years only where one person went into the Hall of Fame. And three of those years in a row were goaltenders when Watson, Dietrich, and O'Toole in three consecutive years were the only ones inducted. The other year was 2015 when Terry Sanderson went in posthumously. We've never had more than Four, five, sorry. And that was the very first year. But I think we need to create a standard where we say, okay, once you retire, you're not eligible for three years. 2016, I believe Kaluski, Sanderson, and Tavares had all just retired. And they were all automatically inducted in. 
But when you're only allowed three votes as a voting member and there are other guys that are on the ballot that may have a chance, you're not, as a voter, not going to vote in Kluski, Sanderson, or Tavares. Right? So with those three guys getting majority of the votes, it was tough for guys like Gavin Prout or Casey Powell or Reggie Thorpe or Pat McCready or Kevin Finneran. It was hard for these guys to get enough votes to get in because you needed, I believe, 75% of the votes to get into the Hall of Fame. So we have to find a system that works. And I know this has been something that the National Crossing has been working on for the last three years. It's changed hands and who's dealing with it all. But if we get this process right, I really believe we have the opportunity to write history and honor the greats of our game. Because there are so many. We talk about this being the 35th year coming up for the National Lacrosse League. And we have what? 5, 13, 15, 18, 25 people in the National Lacrosse League Hall of Fame. 35 years, we only have 20 plus guys in the Hall of Fame. That's not right. And I know the Hall of Fame is to honor the best of the best. But we still need to go back into the past and honor those best. Honor the greats from the NLL early days. Honor the greats from the MILL spandex era. The early days of the NLL. Heck, you could put the entire Toronto Rock Dynasty teams as one and put them all in. And if you were on every team that won five straight titles, put them in the Hall of Fame. But we have to find that grace period. We have to find a proper voting system. We have to find an eligibility system properly. And we need to make this first class of the new Hall of Fame an incredible class. I have no issues if we put like seven guys in right now. And this was brought up to me by a good friend of mine. He said, you know what? If for the next three or four years you put in, say, five or five to seven guys every year, you can catch up. You can go back years and find guys that are deserving and put them in, even if they've been retired for 20-odd years. Sure, I think there needs to be a time where we can say, okay, once you're retired for three years, you're eligible, and then once you've been on the ballot, say, for five years, then you're not eligible anymore. I'm cool with that. But we still have to go back and give the just honor to these greats of before. And I really think the National Crossing is going to do that. I think they've heard everything that we've said. And I think they understand that, like Jessica said, to connect the past with the future is a vital, vital moment for the National Lacrosse League. And I look forward to it. I can't wait. I, I don't know when it's going to be. I don't know how they're going to do it. I don't know who's going to get inducted. I don't even know who's on the ballot. But I am thoroughly excited for this because this has been something that's been missing. And I truly believe we need to recognize some of the amazing, amazing talent that has gone from our sport. And they truly deserve to be recognized. One last 
little bit of a teaser for you. The New York Riptide and Rich Lisk will be making their head coach and GM announcements Friday morning. This is a monumental moment for this organization. And we've spoken to Rich Lisk on this show many times. You heard his interview a couple weeks ago after they dismissed Reggie Thorpe. He is going after character people, people with professionalism, people he has a good relationship with, and people that he can rely on to turn this ship around. And this hasn't been an easy decision for him. It's been an exhausted one for him. He has talked to a lot of people. And it sounds like he is settled on a general manager and on a head coach, and we will find those names Friday morning. And maybe we might be able to get one of them on the show next week. Guaranteed on the show next week is Kyle Hartzell. You may love him. You may hate him. He works out a lot. Oftentimes, it's with his shirt off. But the man is a freak. He is a high-level athlete, and he's one of the best long poles in the world. And uh, I like to call him a good buddy of mine. He had a lot of time in the National Lacrosse League. Would love to see him back in the National Lacrosse League. We'll ask him if he's going to come back. We'll ask him all about Utah and the PLL Championship Series and the PLL Island. We are just a few weeks away from that happening. We're only a week away from the MLL kicking back up again. So without box lacrosse, we've still got the field. You can find me on Twitter at Off the Crossbar. Email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. You can find me on the Instagram at OTCB Podcast. Get out there, enjoy the sunshine, stay safe, and until next time, be excellent to each other. Don't try to love me, don't try to understand